Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey. Oh, wait, Lindsay? No, it's it. Is it Johan August Arfwidsen, the the Swedish chemist who discovered chemical element lithium in 1817 by isolating it as a salt? No, it's me. Just kidding. Oh my gosh, Lindsay, you're such a jokester. I never would have known. Well, I'm glad you're back because we have got a big episode today. Yes, we do. We're going over mood stabilizers. This is a big topic. Indeed. And so we're going to give you guys a general overview of commonly used mood stabilizers and with with specifically looking at side effect profiles and then how to monitor and dose. So the five that we're going to review are lithium, valproic acid, lamotrigine, carbamazepine, and oxcarbazepine. Right on. And so the general indications for mood stabilizers include bipolar illness, including mania and maintenance. Another indication is impulsivity and aggression. Uh, Another one is epilepsy. And that's because a bunch of mood stabilizers are anti-convulsant medications. In fact, they are anti-convulsant medications. Okay. Yes. And they can also be used as adjunctive medications for depression. So what I'm hearing is that they can be used both if somebody's really up, if their mood is really elevated, like manic, or their mood is really down Mm -hmm. and they're depressed. Exactly, exactly. Hence the mood stabilizer name. Okay. They do indeed do both. And then they can also be helpful for general mood lability without necessarily a formal bipolar diagnosis. Yeah, you may see that sometimes. So just because somebody has, you know, lithium or Depakote, for instance, on their their, um, medication list doesn't necessarily mean that they must have bipolar disorder. Exactly. Lindsay, how do the mood stabilizers work? Well, all of them except lithium are essentially anticonvulsants, and they all work by blocking voltage-gated sodium channels. So let's see. So if you block these channels, you basically make some of your neurons less receptive to fire, or they fire less often. Exactly, exactly. So it just kind of calms everything down in your brain a little bit. Makes things less reactive. Yep. Okay. What about lithium? lithium's mechanism of action is actually quite complex and honestly we don't really know why it works exactly whoa so even though johan discovered this in 1812 this chemical salt element number three it's still not known it is still not known i mean there are some general theories and uh, kind of a a basic understanding of what goes on but really why it helps with bipolar we don't know what a mystery indeed let's let's get into it what's up first All right, so first we're going to talk about lithium. Johan's favorite. Okay. So, James, what are the uses for lithium? Lithium is is one of the mood stabilizers that we've had for the longest amount of time, and there's a lot of evidence, and it's used often as a first-line agent. Lithium is used for bipolar disorder, and I would call it maybe one of the gold standards for bipolar disorder, particularly for for maintenance, so once somebody has been stabilized. But it's often started when somebody is acutely manic with the anticipation that they will stabilize in Mm -hmm. their disease. 
Absolutely. Now, one of the big things to note with lithium is the side effect profile because it's important for your patients to be aware of what it can cause potentially. So some of the common side effects include weight gain. One that's commonly complained about by patients is cognitive dulling. So that includes things like memory problems or just feeling generally slower and maybe less creative than they do when they're not taking lithium. It can cause acne and alopecia in some people, and it can also cause a tremor, especially if you're taking an immediate release formulation. GI side effects are also quite common, so things like nausea, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Another side effect is hypothyroidism. So before you start lithium, you often check TSH. Epstein's anomaly is a classic thing that comes up, and I would say that this is a controversy in the field Mm. of medicine. Tell us more. Epstein's anomaly is a controversy, and I think that there is yet to be a solid conclusion, but it is sometimes tested on tests that we take. Um, I would say in general, the recommendations these days are to avoid lithium in the first trimester with the theory that it could be teratogenic. Lithium is also cleared renally. So when you think lithium, think kidneys. If somebody has kidney impairment, you would perhaps redose the lithium or check levels. Lithium can also affect your kidneys. And one of the common associations there would be diabetes insipidus, which would look like polyuria, polydipsia. Lindsay, how do you how do you dose lithium? You often start at what's considered a lower dose. So that would be something like 300 milligrams BID or 600 milligrams QHS. So that's 300 milligrams twice a day mm-hmm. or 600 milligrams at night. Yep. And then you up titrate from there by maybe 300 milligrams or so Q-day um, based on a level. I up titrate to maybe like 900 or 1200 and then check a level. Um, after I've gotten to that dose. Are you also watching to see how somebody's symptoms respond? Absolutely. Absolutely. One really important thing to note about lithium is that it has a very narrow therapeutic range compared to most medications that we use in psychiatry. And that's why we're so fastidious about checking levels. And so once the medication has achieved steady state, which takes about five days or five half-lives and lithium's half-life is about 24 hours, um, you'll obtain a trough level. So that would be right before somebody takes a dose. Exactly. And then you talked about the range. What are you looking for on your labs? So goal range would be something like 0.6 to 1 or 1.2 with the lower end of that range, like 0.6 to 0.8 being good for bipolar maintenance and 0.8 to 1 being better for acute mania. Okay. When might you keep an eye out for lithium toxicity? Lithium toxicity can happen actually quite easily, and it can happen when you are dehydrated. For example, if if someone recently ran a marathon or had a GI bug where they're having lots of diarrhea or nausea and vomiting, that can potentially lead to lithium toxicity. Or if any new medications were added that kind of affects your kidneys, like um, the thiazides or an ACE inhibitor or an NSAID, for example, that can, all of those things can lead to increased levels. Because lithium is processed through your kidneys. Exactly. And what would it, what would it look like if somebody was toxic on lithium so what, some, what could it look like yeah yeah it can look different depending on each person but some of the early signs 
are more like GI related. So that includes diarrhea, vomiting, crampy abdominal pain, or even mild confusion. And unfortunately, those do look somewhat like your typical lithium side effects. It also kind of looks like a lot of other things, right? If you exactly. have a, a stomach viral illness, it could look a lot like that too. So you just have to have a high index of suspicion. And it's important to know, for instance, if somebody came into the emergency room, if they were taking lithium, because then you'd want to get a level. Yep. But then some later signs are more neurologic in nature. So this would be things like true altered mental status, ataxia, profound tremulousness, dysarthria, seizures, and even coma. So lithium can be a useful drug, noting some of those side effects are relevant. What's next? Next is valproic acid. Valproic acid is confusing. I found this confusing. Valproic acid is the same thing as valproate. Depakote is the name, or Depakine is a brand name. So it's easy to get those all confused, but these four words mean the same thing. Valproic acid, valproate, Depakote, Depakine. Yeah, you have to wonder how they got Depakote out of valproic acid. Not sure. Regardless, valproic acid has a number of uses in psychiatry. So like lithium, it can be used for bipolar maintenance and it can be used for acute mania. Additionally, it can be used as an anticonvulsant, anti-epileptic drug for someone with epilepsy. It can be used for migraine prophylaxis. And then lastly, it can be used for impulsivity aggression for a patient with a TBI. What are some of the side effects of Depakote? So like lithium, valproic acid also has a pretty significant side effect profile. So the most common side effects include weight gain and sedation. Hmm. The way I rem- and in fact, the weight gain is, is the most significant on Depakote, even compared to lithium. Um, and I remember that because once a patient told me that he would never go back on Depa bloat because he gained so much weight on it. So I thought that was a helpful way to remember the weight gain side effect. One unique side effect to valproic acid is that you can have LFT elevations ranging from benign, not really affecting your liver, to full-blown liver failure. Depakote actually causing liver failure is rare, though. You can also see thrombocytopenia. Occasionally, rarely, it will cause hyperammonemia. Um, That even causes encephalopathy, pancreatitis, polycystic ovarian syndrome and it's the biggest teratogen of all mood stabilizers what would the teratogenic potential be so it can cause neural tube defects in the form of spina bifida at a rate of up to 10 percent so it's really important to be quite cautious when prescribing this to women of childbearing age you need to inform them of this risk and you need to check if they're on birth control and advocate for them to start on it if they're not already on it, if they really do need to go on Depakote. Okay. What sort of doses do people commonly take? A lot of people tend to start at a low dose, which is 500 milligrams at night, and then go up by 250 to 500 and up titrate to clinical effect. You can also use weight bait dosing. Yeah, that's often seen, uh, especially if you're using Depakote as an anti-epileptic medication. Yep, or even for acute mania. Mm -hmm. Do you you get levels for Depakote? 
You can, you definitely can. The therapeutic window though, isn't as narrow as lithium. The exact range is from 60 to 120. But the thing about Depakote is that the levels don't correlate nearly as well with clinical effect, unlike lithium. Hmm. So it wouldn't necessarily mean that just because somebody's Depakote level was low, it, it wasn't working or they would need more necessarily. Exactly. If they were feeling okay and you felt like objectively they were doing okay. Exactly. If their level's like 60 and they're doing great, you don't necessarily need to go up. Okay. The levels are really most useful to, to make sure that you're, you're not going to be toxic. What might it look like if somebody was toxic on valproic acid? It looks like the worst alcohol intoxication you've ever seen. So it's someone with severe confusion and altered mental status who's like stumbling around. And then that leads to profound sedation and even coma. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So that's Depakote. What's up third? All right. So next is Lamotrigine. Which is brand name... Lamictal. Okay. Lamotrigine is is also indicated for the maintenance of bipolar disorder. Lamotrigine is an anticonvulsant medication, so it's used for epilepsy. Lamotrigine is also potentially used as an adjunctive medication for major depressive disorder. The side effects of Lamotrigine are generally fewer. It's generally better tolerated than other mood stabilizers with less weight gain, less sedation. The potential for GI side effects, headache, vision changes is present, but less so usually. There's one huge thing that I think is worth knowing about and is highly testable, and that is Steven Johnson syndrome. Right, right. Which is what? So Steven Johnson syndrome is a really scary, dangerous rash that involves a significant part of the body, including the mucous membranes, and often requires ICU-level care. Look at some pictures. It's gnarly. Notable with this rash is that this is this is a malignant rash. You can have vital sign changes. You can have abnormal labs. You get hospitalized for this. So the risk is real. Lindsay, what would you do to to prevent against this this uh, this potential? The thing that you do is go up very very slowly on lamotrigine. Your risk is highest when you up titrate quickly. So in fact, lamotrigine has a six week titration schedule to decrease the risk of Steven Johnson syndrome. But even when you're going up super slow, you can often see even benign rashes um, for patients on lamotrigine. Because it takes such a long time, I wouldn't think of lamotrigine as the first thing I would, or the only thing I would do if somebody was acutely in the hospital and they were manic. Right, right. I mean, if they're in the hospital, you can start them on the 25 milligrams, but then they're on that same dose for two weeks, and then they're on 50 for two weeks. They go up to 100 for another week, and then 200 is usually what we aim for by the end of week six. You can see higher doses of lamotrigine for epilepsy, but it's pretty rare to see it above 200 if you're actually just using it for mood. This and actually a couple of the next ones that we'll talk about are it can, can in affect the induction of other medications. And so it's, no, it's worth knowing that that is a possibility and thinking about the interactions that they could have if somebody's on other medications. Speaking of carbamazepine. Carbamazepine. Or Tegretol. James, what is it used for? Similarly, bipolar maintenance. Um, you can be prescribed for acute mania, although again, it's not necessarily the first line that I would pick. I probably would have picked 
one of the first two that we talked about. Um, it's an anti-convulsive medication. Carbamazepine also used for trigeminal neuralgia. The side effects here, similarly, GI side effects, mild sedation, potential for dizziness, headaches, rare but present, the risk of leukopenia with secondary to aplastic anemia, agranulocytosis, again, rash, Stephen Johnson's present, lots of drug-drug interactions. This is a CYP450 inducer. Lindsay, what's a fun quirk about carbamazepine? So a fun quirk about carbamazepine is that it actually auto-induces its own metabolism after the first few weeks that a patient is on it. So even when a patient has been taking it every day, if you checked a level, it might be lower than what you expected. So it often requires a dose increase, and it's not just due to the patient not taking the drug. Hmm. Fun fact. That is fun. What are what what what's a goal um serum level of carbamazepine? So goal serum level of carbamazepine would be between six and twelve. And again, this one doesn't correlate as well to clinical effect either. And so usually it's only checked if you're concerned about non-compliance, a lack of therapeutic effect, or toxicity. So you don't need to check it necessarily. Mm-mm. All right. Okay, so carbamazepine, and then sometimes I get tripped up with this and the next one. What's the next one? It's oxcarbazepine. Any relation? Yes. Similar. It's also called trileptal. All right. So you got two drugs that kind of sound carbish and have T brand names. Potential for confusion. What um what would make oxcarbazepine different than carbamazepine? So it is pretty similar, but it tends to be better tolerated. There's much fewer drug-drug interactions with oxcarbazepine as compared to carbamazepine, and it's better tolerated. There's less sedation. There's no risk of aplastic anemia or Steven Johnson syndrome. But you will often see people with hypodatremia on this due to SIADH. So the SIADH risk is higher for oxcarbazepine. Hyponatremia. Yes, hyponatremia. Ox carbazepine with an O. Oh, yes. Whew. All right. So, so far we've talked about five different medications. There's lots of doses and levels and, oh, man, Lindsay, how do you remember the serum levels for some of these that we've talked about? The three, the three that, that we have levels for. All right. So I like to remember them by the rule of eights. What's the, the rule of eights? I'll add a cool sound effect for that. <laughs> So the rule of eights, I mean, it's not the fanciest rule, but you can remember it by just keeping in mind the number eight. So lithium, like a mid-level would be 0.8. For carbamazepine, a mid-level would be eight. And then for valproic acid, a mid-level would be 80. And so that helps you to kind of remember the overall range. If eight, if 0.8 is in the middle, then your range would be like 0.6 to 1.2. All right, so you've, you're, you can be off by a factor of 10. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Just stick around 8. All right. A lot of these have a lot of risk. We've talked a lot about a lot of potential side effects. And they'll say that often that people people do okay on mood stabilizers. Yes. And we've talked about a lot of them because it does kind of differentiate when you're picking between them, which risks or which are going to be the most potentially bothersome. On the other hand, it's always a conversation about risks and, and benefits and, and what, what the person stands to gain from being on this medication mm-hmm. compared with, with what potential side effects are tolerable. Absolutely. Lindsay, can we test our knowledge about mood stabilizers? 
Okay, let's do a little quiz. Okay. Which mood stabilizer has the narrowest therapeutic index? Lithium. That's right. Next up, which mood stabilizer has risk of liver failure? Oh, the mood stabilizer metabolizing your liver, valproic acid. That's right. So which mood stabilizer has the highest risk of drug-drug interactions? See, one that interacts with other that's carbamazepine that's correct which mood stabilizer has the lowest potential for teratogenicity hmm, the lowest potential that's lamotrigine right on which mood stabilizer has the greatest potential for weight gain weight gain valproic acid yes which mood stabilizer has the slowest titration schedule? Oh, that's lamotrigine again. You start very slow and you increase because of the risk for Steven Johnson syndrome. Yep. And then which mood stabilizer has the highest risk for hyponatremia? Hyponatremia, that's oxcarbacidine. That's right. Awesome. That's all we got. And that is the end, not just of our mood stabilizers episode, but the end of our little series on psychopharmacology. I hope this was helpful. If there are things that you'd like to hear more about in the future, we'll swing back around and do an advanced series. Let us know what you'd like to hear more about. You can check out our website, leave us a review, and drop us a comment. Our website is psychessentials.org psychessentials.org you can also follow us on twitter we're at psych essentials check us out on itunes where you can rate comment and share psych essentials with anyone who you think might be interested our music is by javier suarez off his album tumbling dishes there's a link on our website we didn't talk much about people places or details but if we do they're always changed to protect confidentiality thank you so much for listening we'll see you next time till next time bye Thank you.